Welcome to Inside AgriTurf and thanks for tuning in. This podcast is for the folk who supply, support and use machinery for farm and food production, stadiums and sports grounds, gardens, parks, forests and open spaces. I'm your host Chris Biddle bringing you six decades of experience in this wonderful industry. Aileen, how would you present the opportunities and indeed the benefits of a career in land-based engineering to an audience of school children or at a careers fair? Land-based engineering is an amazing adventure where you get to unleash your skills and imagination to craft, construct, and care for incredible machines used in farming, gardening, and construction. It's like being a master problem solver and a brilliant inventor for the great outdoors. They are the dream weavers who conjure up mighty tractors, supercharged harvesters, and other mind-boggling gadgets that make farming and gardening an absolute delight. They unravel the secrets of how different parts fit together, master the art of fixing things when they go bonkers, and transform the machines into extraordinary marvels. If you're a fan of tinkering with marvelous machines, unleashing your imagination to create wonders, and making a positive impact on nature and food production, then land-based engineering is the sensational career for you. And that was where I left off in the last episode before summer break, asking an automated voice somewhere out in the ether how she, and you have a choice of voices, would present the opportunities and benefits of a career in land-based engineering to a young audience. The terminology might be a bit odd, but that is how AI, artificial intelligence interpreted my question. How will AI impact on society in the coming years and what are the benefits and more importantly what are the dangers? Now there is an episode coming up shortly talking to a business entrepreneur who has set up a specialist company to help small businesses and organizations who wish to embrace the various strands of AI. Hello, I'm Chris Biddle, and it's good to be back with you as we start to exit the summer months where many of the headlines have been made by the weather. Here in the UK, our summer has been described charitably as changeable. Following last year, when temperatures peaked at 40 degrees Fahrenheit in Britain, this year it reverted to type. Indeed, the 18th century English poet Lord Byron maybe had a point when he observed that the English winter ends in July and recommences in August. Not for us, the widely reported searing heat of southern Europe and wildfires. You could say that this year the UK lived up to its reputation as a temperate, often rainy climate. Not too hot in summer, not too cold in winter and always unpredictable. At least, that is in this first part of the 21st century. Who knows about the 22nd and 23rd centuries if the climate change soothsayers are to be believed. And for farmers, the warm, dry weather in July resulted in early grain harvests, but persistent storms as we moved into August has resulted in more challenging conditions but they are a stoical bunch they know that the weather is the weather and there's damn all you can do about it on the other hand my lawn at home thinks it's early May not 
mid-August and needs cutting almost twice a week, which has obviously been positive for the dealers and contractors. But enough of the past. It's the future we must focus on. The summer break has provided me with the opportunity to look at the format of the podcast after reaching my century of episodes. Inside AgriTurf is a niche production for a niche audience. Uh, we will never have the level of loads uh, enjoyed by popular genres, comedy, film and TV, health and well-being, sports and politics. Our mission statement, if we had such a thing, would be to inform educate, interest and entertain those associated with the agriturf machinery industry. And when you publish a podcast, you know how many downloads it records, you know where your listeners are, but you do not know who they are. Inside Agriturf has more than 6,000 unique listeners that only get counted once, and that 85% are UK-based, the rest spread across more than 30 countries. But month by month, the technology is evolving. I have switched to recording podcasts from Zoom to the fast-growing Riverside platform, which not only results in much superior sound and video quality, should I need it, but also gives me an instant written transcription, making editing the episodes much easier. Most of these enhancements are driven by ever more sophisticated AI, which will enable me to add some exciting enhancements to Inside AgriTurf in the coming weeks. But at the moment, I'll keep my powder dry and focus on the immediate plans for forthcoming episodes. one of the most hotly debated issues has been the allocation of franchises across the dealer network. It's nothing new, and today the franchise merry-go-round is as active as ever. So in coming episode, I'm going to focus on what I'm calling the franchise jigsaw. Now here I'm really referring to a dealer's lead franchise, normally a tractor brand. There are three main triggers to a change of lead franchise. First, the manufacturer prompts it, either for rationalisation of territories or for poor performance, of course. Second, in an ageing dealer population where a dealer principal decides to retire, often without succession plans in place, this often results in a neighbouring dealer being encouraged by the manufacturer to expand the territory. And sometimes, indeed, an arrangement is agreed between dealers during private conversations before involving the manufacturer. The third trigger, and the most intriguing, is when a dealer decides to change lead franchise of his own volition. Now, the dealership I was involved in for many years was founded in 1860 as a blacksmith. It operated four branches and had held the Ford Tractor, subsequently New Holland, of course, a franchise since the 1950s. As a consequence, its extensive territory was dominated by blue tractors. The company, however, was bought by a neighbouring dealer a few years ago, and after a while, the new owner decided to dump New Holland in favour of Agco. It was a bold decision, prompted by a number of factors. But in this series, I'm not going to delve into the whys and wherefores of individual franchise changes. There is little doubt that John Deere's Dealer of Tomorrow strategy, introduced in 2011, has 
been the catalyst for reshaping the dealership map in the UK and Europe, a process that continues. Now, I'm solely interested in how a dealer sets about reshaping his business for a new lead brand after telling customers over many years that brand A was the greatest thing since sliced bread, but now brand B is the chosen one. How do you go about convincing loyal, long-standing customers? And dealers have often been incentivized for conquest sales, replacing a competitor brand who may have to be switched back again. And how often do customers buy the local dealer's name and reputation for service over the brand they sell? And what about staff? How do you retrain and prevent good quality sales, service and part staff being tempted to follow the brand to a rival dealer? And indeed, what is the role of the manufacturer supplying the new franchise? And how long is the transition process before the business normalises? Questions, questions, and ones I plan to address in coming episodes. But first, how is the dealership map being redrawn? In the first episode of this new season, I'll be talking to freelance agricultural journalist Peter Hill, who has just produced a follow-up survey analysing the biggest farm machinery dealers in the UK, which are then ranked by turnover. He produced his initial report in 2022, based on dealers' financials for 2020, and his latest published report charts the up-and-down movements for the 2021 financial year. Both reports were commissioned and published in the Farmers Weekly, and links to both are included in the show notes to this episode. So I asked Peter how a dealer's performance in 2021 compared with 2020, and whether he'd looked at profitability as well as turnover. Yes, it was quite clear amongst all the 45, pretty much uh, every single one of them, uh, re- reported increased turnover, and clearly a lot of that will have been as a result of the easing supply chain. That was still a, a, a considerable difficulty, and that's still ongoing now to a, a much lesser extent. I didn't actually look at profitability. I, I thought, A, I was trying to pull together enough figures that my head could cope with as it was, but also I thought that was publicising profitability of business was even more sensitive <laughs> a yeah. topic and I kept clear of that but maybe it's something I will do in future and I just need to look and see whether there are consistent uh, figures that are produced by the filing companies. However, exclusively for you Chris, I did actually have a look amongst the top 15 to see if there was any sort of comparisons I could make and I managed to pull out there's about seven or eight, I think it was, companies who who gave their gross profit margin. And I thought that was quite interesting because the average of that number came out at just under 14% gross profit margin, which I think some people would consider to be quite healthy. Mm-hmm. And but the but it actually ranged from six percent, which was the lowest figure, to a high of more than twenty-two percent. And so there's clearly a range of profitabilities there. And of course, as the saying goes, turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, something (laughs) along those lines. So actually, the profitability of those dealerships is is an interesting point. And it's it's something that if I've given the chance to do this again next year, then uh, it's something I might try and pull out and explore a bit further. 
That's interesting, and there are indeed a lot of positives in there. And following Peter will be David Hart, MD of Kubota UK in Ireland and Vice President Business Transformation for Kubota Europe. Now, David initially worked for a John Deere dealer before spending over 20 years with John Deere in senior roles. Now, Kubota has been one of the beneficiaries of some of John Deere's rationalisation in recent times. So I asked David what lessons he's learnt in handling a franchise change from one lead brand to another. I think it goes back to the first, one of the first things I said is expect the unexpected because even when you're the leading brand, you'll get into these discussions and actually it will take a different course. So, and you can have the best strategy in the world, but if the other side doesn't want to play ball, then it all comes to an end. The only thing I would say, it, it makes sense for some of those companies to go that direction because of the the technology that's out in the marketplace now and, and the cost of some of those machines. You can't afford to have one outlet, for example, looking after a combine that now costs a million pounds because that technician or two technicians might only ever go to it two or three times and every time they go it's a new experience whereas you look at some of these super dealers that you've got now now they've got the i would say the footprint of product to actually have a group of specialists that specialize in those products we even see that with the top end of our agricultural tractor you have to have more of a specialist approach to that Whereas the rest of our range is is a bit more general. And, and the good thing about hey, being a Kubota dealer is you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to sell them and repair them. <laughs> I'm calling this series the Franchise Jigsaw. But the fact remains that this is more than often a very imperfect jigsaw because rarely do the pieces fit. In subsequent episodes, we'll hear how dealers themselves coped with the change of a major franchise. As I said at the beginning, with over 100 episodes under my belt now, I did feel an opportune time to reflect on the format and see what could be added to engage more closely with the AgriTurf machinery community. For three years, Inside AgriTurf has been published without any financial support from advertising or sponsorship, which can be annoying and often interrupts the flow of the podcast. It is my intention to keep Inside AgriTurf free of such interruptions, and I would like to invite you to support the podcast and keep it ad-free by becoming a friend of Inside AgriTurf, which itself brings a number of benefits. You will, of course, have access to all the regular episodes. And as a friend, you will also receive our on-air newsletter with advance notice of forthcoming episodes, profiles of guests, an opportunity to provide feedback and put forward your ideas for future topics. And now for the exciting new feature, the creation of the AgriTurf Academy an online resource containing advice and tips on a range of issues facing all those who work in the agriturf machinery sector. 
It will contain episodes on sales and marketing, display and merchandising, advertising, social media recruitment, health and well-being, and more, all delivered by experts in their field. As well as the spoken word, you can obtain transcriptions of the episode together with a summary of the key points and links to further references. Now, only friends of Inside AgriTurf will receive these exclusive episodes, which will then be added to the portfolio of content on the AgriTurf Academy, which will expand organically over the coming months. Most of these episodes will be new and specially recorded, but the Academy will also include adapted business content from relevant previous episodes of Inside AgriTurf. Early episodes will include a two-parter, Mastering the Art of Sales Conversation, delivered by Sunjan Craner, MD of Agrarian, a leading sales and marketing company based in New Zealand, who specialises in working with agribusiness companies. Sunjan, you and I are concerned with selling into a rural audience, farmers, people who work in golf courses, in grounds and, and grounds care. Now, selling to those guys and gals, is that different? Does it provide different challenges to talking to the general public? Yeah, they are a different market and they're wired differently because they've chosen to take a different occupation, right? So with people that live on the land or rely on their income from the land, they score very high on agency or autonomy, which means they're control freaks. So there is so much that the farming rural community cannot control tariffs um, grain silos being blown up dollar currency shifts recession input costs all the rest of it so what happens is when you're selling to a agricultural and, and to a lesser degree to the consumer but regardless people have a natural aversion to being sold to and this is why we hate this word sales because it conjures up all these yucky salesy sleazy connotations when someone jumps onto us when we walk into a Marks and Sparks or a Curry's or, or whatever. But what it means is we just don't like being sold to. And farmers particularly don't like being sold to, which is where I specialise in, because they score really high on agency and autonomy. What I mean by that is they are autonomous. They like being their own boss, because if they weren't, they wouldn't farm. Yeah, the worst thing you can do is actually sell to someone. And the most important thing you need to do is serve. And then, as referred to earlier, Wesley Baker, CEO of Canterbury AI, who is a multi-business entrepreneur founding business startups in the UK and US, will discuss the possible benefits and threats of AI in business. Becoming a friend of Inside Agritive, you will not only be supporting the podcast and keeping it ad-free, but you will also receive these exclusive benefits. And the cost is just £5 a month. No minimum period. You can cancel at any time if it is not for you. Now, I'll give you more details very shortly. But in the meantime, I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for listening to this preview of the new season, season four of Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>